guys. I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here on this very special holiday, Thanksgiving. This is your go-to for Hot Liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and yes, happy warriors, especially today on Thanksgiving. Check me out on social media. On Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore. And on Twitter and True Social, I am at Monica Crowley. Also by email, I'm at Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. Well, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Today is a very, very special day because it is a uniquely American holiday. Other countries have versions of this. I know Canada's got a Thanksgiving, but really Thanksgiving is a uniquely American tradition. And what I love about this holiday is it is all about family and friends and giving thanks. It is a spiritual holiday. It is about giving thanks to God for all of the abundance that we enjoy in this country, first and foremost, our freedoms, but also all of the prosperity and abundance of food and other things that we are so blessed to have in this country. Um, This country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. It was founded one nation under God. And so I hope today as you're celebrating with your family and your neighbors and your friends that you will keep that in mind, that this is a day of gratitude. It's a day of thanks for this nation and all of its blessings. Please keep that first and foremost in the front of your minds. The other thing that I love about this holiday is this is pretty much the only day of the year where you know that the entire rest of the country from about 3 p.m. to about, I don't know, 8, 9, 10 p.m., the entire rest of the country is doing the exact same thing. Everybody is gathered around a table, uh, and if you don't have loved ones to be with, perhaps you are enjoying your friends, maybe you're alone this holiday. You might be watching football, but you know that everybody is centered on what this day means, and everybody else in America is centered around this one holiday and what it means. So it's truly a blessing to spend this very special holiday with you. Well, because it's a very special day, I want to do something special. This week marked the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, November 22nd, 1963. Some of you may remember it, recalling where you were when you heard the news that Kennedy had been shot and then later died. It's sort of become a common cultural touchstone a personal story to be shared with others who share theirs of that day as well. But as time has passed, there are fewer and fewer people who do remember that day and more people who are simply too young to do so. And so the Kennedy assassination, which is such an important part of our recent history, begins to recede in memory, if not completely disappear. That's one of the many reasons why I wanted to do a special about it today, because we are now six decades past that day. What do we know now about what happened 
versus the official line that we have gotten over the past 60 years, especially given what we now know about the deep state. Who better to turn to to break it all down than the inimitable Roger Stone? Roger is, of course, a legendary political consultant and confidant to Republican presidents from Nixon to Trump as they defined the last half of the 20th century and the first part of the 21st, so has Roger Stone. Because he is such an epically effective strategist and thinker and tactician for Republicans and populists like Nixon and Trump, the left has never stopped attacking Roger, but as he always says, Roger Stone did nothing wrong. The fact that he is still standing and as relevant as ever is a huge testament to his strength, his intellect, and his wisdom. And as I always say, thank God Roger Stone is on our side. He is the host of The Stone Zone on Rumble, and The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC Radio in New York. He's also the star of Get Me Roger Stone on Netflix, which I saw and I recommend to everybody. And he is the author of countless books, including one that details what we're gonna talk about today called The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ. He's also one of the best dressed men on the planet and he is my longtime friend, Roger Stone joins us now. Roger, welcome. Monica, I am delighted to be with you. Well, you know, that was a long introduction. <laughs> and as I always say, you know, when you eat up the show with your entire resume, that means you're very accomplished, which of course you are. And I've been so honored to call you a friend since I first started working for President Nixon in his last years in the early to mid-1990s. Uh, you were very effective in that role at a, at a time that the former president, uh, I think, uh, you know, was doing very important things in terms of international diplomacy. Uh, he was in his uh, he was in his second wilderness years, I guess I would say, uh, but making an enormous contribution to world peace, never at the same time losing his appetite for inside political knowledge and gossip and I would say, uh, you know, always kibitzing uh, about uh, the game of politics, which he loves so much. Well, I think I've told you this. When I was working there, I was fresh out of college. I'd written him a letter. You all know the story. And sometimes I would go into his office before the great man would come in and just check to make sure his desk was set up and the mail was sort of organized for him. And I remember seeing mail from you, letters from you, with the return address, your old firm, Black, Manafort, Stone, and Kelly. And of course, Manafort is Paul Manafort. And we've had him on this show uh, as well. And he's a, a good longtime friend. So anyway, I am so happy to have you here. And I want to, and I know I've told you this many times, President Nixon respected you beyond belief. Your brilliance, your strategic mind, your ability to execute, your toughness, your willing to fight, your, your courage. He was really your biggest champion. Well, he was a very great man. Uh, you know, in 1972, I was the youngest member of the committee to reelect the president. Uh, I got to shake the president's hand one time during that campaign. I was extraordinarily junior. 
I mean, I saw all these other important people, John Mitchell, Bob Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, John Dean, Gordon Liddy, uh, come and go, Henry Kissinger, come and go. But uh, as I said, I was extraordinarily junior. It was not until 1977 uh, when I was elected young Republican national chairman that uh, at that point, former President Nixon invited me to San Clemente for what I really thought would be, you know, a quick grip and grin, as they say. Uh, Ken Kachigian greeted me and told me, look, the, the boss is very busy. He doesn't have a lot of time, so you'll probably have uh, 15 minutes. So I entered his office in La Casa Pacifica. I had an extraordinary view of the ocean. Uh, there was nothing on his desk. He was clearly a man with time on his hands. Uh, and um, he congratulated me on my election, asked me what the state of the party was. Told him I thought it was so good that we would retake the White House in 1980. He said, well, surely we're going to nominate Governor John Connolly for president. I said, no, sir, that's wrong. We're, we're going to nominate Ronald Reagan for president. Mm. He said, you, you, you really think so? And I said, yes. And I gave him several reasons why. To which he said, uh, do you have plans for lunch? <laughs> I said, uh, and I said, no, sir, I do not. He said, well, you do now. Uh, and he had lunch brought to us on two trays. And we ended up talking politics for four and a half hours. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Very few people get to meet their hero. I mean, Richard Nixon was my personal hero. Uh, I had been a zealot for Barry Goldwater. Uh, I had, we were very, when I was 12 years old, when I got a little older, I began to realize that Goldwater had been a less than perfect candidate, had made a number of mistakes. Uh, and I wrote Richard Nixon a letter uh, in 1966 telling him that I, based on my own study, I thought that he'd been cheated out of the 1960 election if he had ever decided to run again, that I wanted in. And they kept that letter on file for two years. Uh, and then in 19, late 1967, almost early 1978, uh, I was hired uh, in New York to essentially work as a gopher uh, in the, uh, uh, at the Nixon for President headquarters, but really working for John Mitchell, as in, kid, go get me some coffee. Kid, take this envelope over to Governor Dewey's law firm. Uh, kid, go meet, uh, you know, Senator Dirksen at the, uh, head, at the uh, train station and bring him here, and so on. It was, uh, it was very heady stuff for someone my age, uh, but by 1972, uh, I got nowhere near the president. Then in his later years, when John Whitaker, vice president at AT&T, who vetted Nixon's uh, invitations and ran political messages for him, decided to retire, uh, the president asked me if I would take on his responsibilities as a volunteer. And of course, I gladly did, which brought me in contact with you and John Taylor and others. <laughs> I'm not so sure I knew that story that you had written a, him a letter as I did as a young college kid, right? And, you know, Roger, your point about meeting your idol, I used to tell President Nixon when I got to know him and was working for him, he used to say, Monica, how are you making it through? Like, how did you make it through a top university as a conservative? 
And of course, I had to tell him the story that as I was coming of age in middle school and then high school, Ronald Reagan was the president. So when I started paying attention to politics and the world, everything that Reagan was saying about smaller government, cutting taxes, beating the commies, everything kind of instinctually hit me as correct, even though I was so young and I didn't know the why behind why I thought it was uh, correct. It just instinctively hit me as, yes, this is the right way to think about the country and the world. And I was explaining this to President Nixon, who, as you know, had a bit of a rivalry, a friendly rivalry with Ronald Reagan. Um, he sat there and he listened. He was like, okay, Monica, well, if Reagan made you a conservative, then I am keeping you that way, right? <laughs> I was like, yes, Mr. President, that is that is 100% true. Um, but I, I'm glad that you shared that story because when you meet one of your idols, like Nixon was an idol to you and to me, um, it's just such an extraordinary moment. And just like you, Roger, this is why we've been friends for so long, just like you, by the time I got to him, it was the last years of his life. So we did have some time on his hands, although he remained very busy until the day he died. Um, he gave me a college junior going into her senior year. He gave me an hour and a half of his time and walked me around the world and talked about American foreign policy in <clears throat> every corner of the globe and then American domestic politics and some political gossip. Just like you, I sat there blown away that he was sharing so much wisdom and so much time with me. He really was. By the way, for the audience, every once in a while, Roger and I will text each other and go, Nixon's still the one. Am I right? It's true. <laughs> one of the highlights of my life was President Nixon walking my wife and I through the little house where he was born, which is, of course, on the grounds of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. Uh, look, it, it is one of the great tragedies of history uh, that the same bent fake news media that seeks to destroy Donald Trump uh, right now uh, has buried uh, in the ashes of Watergate all of the great accomplishments of Richard Nixon. I mean, he ended the war in Vietnam. Uh, he reached a strategic arms limitation agreement with the Russians. Uh, he brought China in out of the cold at a time that China was a dirt poor, backward agrarian society with no technological capabilities. There was no way for Richard Nixon to foresee uh, that the Bushes would give China most favored nation trading status. There was no way for Nixon to foresee that the Clintons would sell uh, our, our deepest military uh, secrets missile targeting technology to the Chinese for illegal campaign contributions. Uh, these are the things that turbocharge China as a world power that now threatens the United States. But at the time, Nixon uh, brought them out of the cold and, and visited China in a historic visit. He was very skillfully playing the Russians off against the Chinese in order to get concessions from both, including the strategic arms limitation. Uh, he gave us the 18-year-old vote. He ended the military draft. Uh, he desegregated the public schools without incident, without bloodshed. Uh, he unilaterally saved Israel from total annihilation in the 1973 Yom Kippur War over the objections of Dr. Henry Kissinger, 
over the objections of his own uh, joint chiefs of staff, over the objections of his entire foreign policy uh, apparatus, uh, the, the, he was a truly great and very, very pro pro productive and effective president. But none of these things get discussed or, or written about because his name is sadly, solely associated with Watergate. Mm -hmm. And we are going to cycle back to Nixon because Nixon and Trump have a lot in common, including being the existential threats that they are to the deep state. So I, I want to cycle back to Nixon uh, and Trump a little later in our conversation, Roger. But because we are now marking the 60th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, I wanted to have you here because that particular history mystery um, is, is it's still... Um, yet to be unraveled, okay? So let's zoom back into history. And also I wanna ask you about 2024 at the end of our conversation as well, but let's take a step back in history because we are atop this monumental anniversary, okay? And you wrote a whole book about the Kennedy assassination with a theory that his vice president, Lyndon Baines Johnson was behind it. Before we get into that, I want you to take us back to November 22nd, 1963. What do you personally remember about that day? Well, I remember uh, being in a classroom. I think it was in the second grade uh, and the teacher coming in and telling us uh, that President Kennedy had been shot uh, and they wheeled a television set in and turned it on. Uh, I remember being shocked. Uh, you know, my parents uh, were Republicans, but we were also Catholics. I always suspected that my mother may have secretly voted for JFK. Uh, my dad and my grandfather were staunch Nixon supporters. Uh, I remember reading the New York Daily News uh, during his uh, funeral procession, seeing the picture of little John John Kennedy saluting his father's casket. And I remember crying. It was, a, it was a very distraught time. Of course, I wasn't old enough to understand the larger forces uh, at work here. But uh, look, I, I, based on everything that I have studied, based on my own book, uh, I certainly do not allege that Lyndon Baines Johnson uh, acted alone uh, uh, in the murder of John F. Kennedy. What I say is that there were a number of individuals and in institutions, all of had all of whom had their own individual interest in the removal of John Kennedy from from the presidency. But Lyndon Baines Johnson was the man who had the most acute interest because he was facing federal prosecution in two major scandals of the day: the Billy Sal Estes scandal. Billy Sal Estes was a flamboyant Texas wheeler dealer uh, who Johnson had delivered multi-million dollar agricultural contracts to from the federal government. Sal Estes was kicking back big time to Johnson. And then there was the Bobby Baker scandal. Baker was the secretary of the U.S. Senate, described by Lyndon Johnson as my strong right arm. He was also essentially John Kent, pardon me, uh, Lyndon Johnson's bagman. Uh, no major piece of appropriation legislation, particularly in the defense area, went through the U.S. Senate in the 50s without a kickback to LBJ. 
Uh, and Robert Kennedy had already announced, uh, not announced, but told intimates that LBJ would be dumped from the ticket and faced federal prosecution. So uh, he had the most acute interest in the removal of John Kennedy. Johnson is the man who insisted on the trip to Dallas. Johnson is the man who threw Governor John Connolly, his protege, his former administrative assistant in, and chief of staff in the Senate, that the presidential motorcade drive through Dealey Plaza, where the car had to come to a full stop uh, and take a hard right turn, a total violation of the Secret Service manual, by the way, instead of driving uh, to the merchandise mart uh, by the freeway, which would have been much safer. John F. Kennedy's advanced man, John, Jerry Bruno, writes in his book that he objected uh, to the motorcade route because he thought it was dangerous. Uh, but that he was overruled by Governor Connolly, who said that if we didn't take the route Connolly and therefore Johnson favored, the entire presidential trip uh, would be canceled. Uh, when, when Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says the Central Intelligence Agency was deeply involved in his uncle's assassination, he is correct uh, when others uh, credibly say that organized crime were, were, was also involved. They are also correct. Uh, both of those entities had their own individual motive for the murder of John F. Kennedy. Johnson's motive was clear. Uh, it's interesting that on Inauguration Day 1961, a bitter cold day in Washington, Chief Kennedy speechwriter Ted Sorensen was standing next to Johnson's right-hand man and Secretary of the Senate, Bobby Baker, uh, when Johnson was sworn in as vice president, Sorensen turned to Baker and said, well, Bobby, congratulations. And Baker said with a red face, John F. Kennedy will live a violent and pre will die a violent and premature death and mm. stormed away. Uh, when Johnson was a uh, placed on the ticket, really blackmailed his way onto the ticket. John F. Kennedy had decided to choose uh, Stuart Symington, the senator from Missouri, as his running mate. Uh, according to Clark Clifford's memoirs, uh, Symington's memoirs also, he was in his room composing his acceptance speech for the vice presidential nomination when LBJ and Texas uh, congressman and speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn, went to John F. Kennedy's hotel suite to show him photos that had been uh, thoughtfully provided by J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI of Johnson in bed with an East German spy by the name of Inga. Uh, and they told him that, uh, that maybe he should reconsider, that Johnson should be on the ticket, that Johnson would guarantee the carrying of Texas, uh, and that um, if Kennedy didn't see it their way, well, these photos just might make their way to the campaign of one Richard M. Nixon. So Johnson basically blackmailed his way onto the ticket. When asked in a press conference at the convention in Los Angeles why he would give up the enormous power of being the majority leader of the U.S. Senate for the powerless job of vice president, he said, well, look how many vice presidents have become president upon the death of the president. When I look at those odds, let's just say I'm a betting man. 
Mm. There it is. There it is. Mm. Okay, Roger, I'm going to ask you to please hold tight. We've got so much more to get into. This is a very complicated and intricate story. So we're going to continue to unravel it with Roger Stone. Sit tight. Okay, we are back with Roger Stone on this Thanksgiving. Didn't Johnson and JFK really hate each other? I mean, that this was back in the day when geographical balance on a presidential ticket really mattered. So JFK coming from Massachusetts and the Northeast felt like he needed somebody from the South and Lyndon Johnson was there out of Texas, very effective uh, for what he did as Senate Majority Leader, the Johnson treatment and all of that. Um, so, uh, you know, it was it was back when Kennedy felt like he could use Johnson's help in bringing that part of the country and speaking to Southerners in a way that Kennedy couldn't. Now, of course, geographical balance doesn't matter at all. Um, but he chose them for the ticket, but they really hated each other's guts, right? Yeah, I, I think the, the real animus was between Robert Kennedy uh, and Lyndon Johnson. Robert Kennedy believed correctly uh, that uh, that the Johnson forces had broken into John Kennedy's doctor's office in New York City and gotten his medical records proving that he did indeed had Addison's disease. Uh, the historian Robert Dalek has, uh, without any basis whatsoever, blamed Richard Nixon for this burglary. But uh, in fact, uh, John Connolly uh, and uh, the Republican, pardon me, the Democratic National Committee woman from Texas, uh, uh, India Edwards, had a joint press conference at the L.A. Democratic Convention announcing that John F. Kennedy had Addison's disease and would not be well enough to fill out his first term. This infuriated Robert Kennedy uh, and really begins the deep animus between the two men. When LBJ and Sam Rayburn uh, met with JFK to submit their demands, they specifically insisted that Robert Kennedy not be present. So um, I think John F. Kennedy was more amused by uh, LBJ, whereas whereas Bobby Kennedy truly hated him. Uh, and uh, the hate was mutual. I mean, uh, one of the things that Billy Salestis describes is Lyndon Johnson making the slitting motion uh, across his neck while he had uh, Robert Kennedy on the speakerphone. So um, the motives here are, are very clear. The point, of course, is the Central Intelligence Agency blames John F. Kennedy for the uh, failure of the Bay of Pigs uh, invasion. They, uh, they believe, uh, they know in real time that uh, what really happened in the Russian missile crisis, uh, which was not revealed to the American people for 40 years, was that John and Robert Kennedy made a secret deal to remove our NATO missiles uh, from Italy and Turkey in return for a pledge from Russian dictator uh, Nikita Khrushchev to remove the missiles that had been placed uh, in Cuba. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Central Intelligence Agency uh, believed uh, that Kennedy's failure to provide air power at the Bay of Pigs, uh, plus his is folding to, to uh, Khrushchev, really, uh, in the Bay of Pigs, that clearly outlines their motive uh, for his murder. Johnson's motive is clear. He wants to avoid prison. Organized crime is also a key player here because in 19, 
60, Ambassador Joseph P. Kennedy, John Kennedy's father, uh, had solicited $1 million in campaign funds, which is a huge amount of money in 1959, uh, as well as the assistance of the mob twisting arms, first in the West Virginia primary and then uh, in both Chicago and Texas for the general election. Uh, they had made a deal with Ambassador Kennedy that the Kennedy administration would drop the deportation efforts against Carlos Marcelo uh, and Santel Traficante, two of the mob chieftains that the Eisenhower administration were trying to deport. When Robert Kennedy became attorney general, uh, he double-crossed uh, the mob and pursued the deportation of both of them extremely aggressively, actually uh, uh, arresting uh, Marcelo when he went to his immigration check-in for the week and dumping him in the jungle in Guatemala. So the mob felt uh, uh, double-crossed. Big Texas Oil had a major uh, interest in removing John F. Kennedy. He was seeking to uh, replace the oil depletion allowance to repeal it, which would cost the Texas oil men like H.L. Uh, Hunt uh, uh, and uh, and uh, Kurt, uh, pardon me, uh, uh, Kurt Murchison, um, millions and millions of dollars. Uh, John Kennedy was insisting on a silver or gold-backed dollar. He preferred silver. Uh, this got him the animus of the uh, federal and international banking communities. Uh, but what do all of these entities have in common? Well, the common thread is Lyndon Johnson. Uh, as majority leader of the U.S. Senate, Johnson takes the unusual step of appointing himself to the Subcommittee on Appropriations uh, of the uh, Senate uh, Defense Appropriations Committee, um, which oversees the CIA's black box budget. Lyndon Johnson was the paymaster for the CIA, uh, and uh, they have an exponential growth in their funding under uh, Senator Johnson. When Johnson became vice president, he appoints Harry F. Byrd, the senator from Virginia, a loyal ally and Johnson man, to chair that crucial subcommittee so he can keep his thumb on the CIA's budget. Johnson also triples the budget of the FBI of his next door neighbor, J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover, who I don't think is an active participant in the uh, assassination attempt, but is well aware of what's going on, prepared to either go along with its success or arrest those involved if it should fail, uh, is Johnson's uh, next door neighbor. He knows that in 1964, he's facing mandatory retirement by law as FBI director. He knows uh, that Bobby Kennedy's already begun telling people that he will be replaced. So he has an inherent interest in the removal uh, of, uh, of, of John Kennedy. Uh, Lyndon Johnson is on the pad to the mob. Mar Carlos Marcello is paying Lyndon Johnson the princely sum of $10,000 a month, which again in the 1960s is a huge amount of money to protect his illegal gambling dens in Dallas and uh, San Antonio and Houston. Uh, the money is flowing through a man named Jack Halfer. Halfer would receive a presidential pardon on an unrelated crime on November 24th, 1963. Mm. Uh, wow. So Johnson is the common thread between all of these entities. He's the chief water carrier for the Texas oil lobby, as you might expect. He's the, he is the common thread 
between uh, uh, all of these institutions and individuals um, who had uh, an interest in the removal of John F. Kennedy. But to bring it very specifically to LBJ, uh, and I make this case in my book, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald shot no one that day. There are no powder burns, no nitrates on his chest or his arms. Uh, it is impossible for him to have fired a leaky Carcano $29 Italian uh, war carbine uh, and left no powder burns. Uh, what does he say when he's pulled out uh, in public? He says, I'm a patsy. I was I a patsy. Noah. Yes. Uh, so what, what did he, well, let me stop you there because you've just imparted a tremendous amount of information. You, you've just laid out this extraordinary confluence of interests, right? Like when people always ask us about the deep state, well, who's actually running the deep state? It sounds like a conspiracy. It doesn't have to be a single individual writing down exactly what they're all going to do. It's a confluence of interests of people who have the same interests, who are all on the same page. It remains unspoken. So you've just put together this incredible uh, web of this confluence of, of interests from the oil interest to Castro and the Cubans, Khrushchev and the Soviets, organized crime. I mean, it's it really is quite stunning. So let's take a step back because I want to get into Oswald here. Right after the shots rang out, Roger, you had this immediate tumble of events. You've got bundling Kennedy and getting him to Parkland Hospital. You've got the wild search for the gunman. You got the shooting of Officer Tibbet down the street, elsewhere in Dallas. You've got the announcement of Kennedy's death, the apprehension of Lee Harvey Oswald in a dark movie theater down the street. You got the return of Kennedy's body back to Washington with LBJ being sworn in as president aboard Air Force One, with Jackie still in her blood-spattered suit at his side. You got the shooting of Oswald by Jack Ruby. I mean, all of this happening in the space of like three days, absolutely head-spinning. So set those early days into context, if you could, with who is Lee Harvey Oswald, who enlisted him, and if he did not pull the trigger, who did? Uh, there's a lot there to digest. My purpose uh, was in laying out the motive. I've already laid out the means. Johnson insists uh, that, uh, that JFK go to Texas at the last minute. Uh, he tries to change uh, the seating in the motorcade to move uh, his close ally, Governor John Connolly, out of the death car and replace him with Senator Ralph Yarborough, uh, who, Kennedy, who Johnson hated. Uh, and JFK specifically uh, nixes that seating change arrangement because the entire purpose of the trip to Texas was supposed to be to bind up the two wings of the Texas Democratic Party, the progressive wing as represented by Senator Yarborough, the bourbon wing as represented by uh, John Connolly. Some conservative Democrats in Texas thought that, uh, that uh, Kennedy was uh, too liberal and therefore his being seen with Connolly was the whole point of the trip. As far as Lee Harvey Oswald is concerned, declassified documents uh, put out in the last several years have demonstrated that uh, that the CIA's knowledge and awareness of him was far, far more uh, than they have ever admitted that he most likely was trained uh, at the uh, to speak Russian at the 
CIA's language school in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, uh, that he move, he, he renounces his citizenship and moves to Russia, but then he has no problem getting back in the country. That makes no sense at all. Uh, the man who shows up at the Russian embassy in Mexico City uh, goes on the record, but the problem is uh, that none of them say he looks like the Lee Harvey Oswald, who was later apprehended uh, in the murder of John F. Kennedy. Uh, in fact, uh, it's impossible for Oswald to have been the shooter from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository Building because he is seen in the lunchroom on the second floor of that building by a Dallas police officer uh, exactly four minutes after Kennedy has been shot. Not possible for him to get off three shots in the speed required based on an audio recording from a Dallas police officer who left his microphone on a radio transmission. So we know the exact timing of the shots. Uh, no, sh no government sharpshooter has been able to, to duplicate uh, that alleged succession of shots. Uh, Oswald would have had to hide the gun and run down four flights of stairs to the lunchroom where he was not out of breath. Uh, interestingly enough, a woman named Victoria Adams, who worked in the building, was on that wooden store staircase between the sixth and fourth floors at the crucial time, she records neither seeing nor hearing, more importantly, on this creaky wooden door, you know, uh, uh, staircase, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. We also know that found on the, uh, on the cardboard boxes in the crow's nest from which Oswald allegedly shot are the fingerprints uh, of a man named Malcolm Mac Wallace. Uh, Wallace was indeed a Marine sharpshooter. Uh, Oswald had the lowest rating as a shooter, by the way, from the Marine Corps. He was not a good shot. Uh, Mac Wallace had been convicted of murder in 1951 uh, in Texas, where he shot a man in cold blood uh, because he was involved in a love triangle with Lyndon Johnson's sister and was trying to blackmail Johnson. Uh, regarding the activities in the 1948 election, uh, as well as uh, some of uh, some bribery he had learned about from Johnson's sister, uh, uh, a uh, special a fingerprint specialist named Nathan Darby uh, has identified those fingerprints as uh, in the uh, in the uh, six on the sixth floor uh, as belonging to Malcolm Wallace. Uh, Wallace. Uh, had uh, a uh, a patronage job at the agriculture department, which had been arranged for him uh, by Lyndon Johnson. Uh, at least six people uh, ID a man in the sixth floor window who meets the physical description uh, of Malcolm Wallace. Uh, it is uh, two of them are prisoners across the uh, way. Uh, who have uh, all the time in the world to look out the window or watching the motorcade, they identify a man who is heavy set, wearing spectacles, uh, tan uh, uh, pants, and a light colored jacket, uh, balding. That uh, three other people uh, tell Dallas police or the Warren Commission they also see a man who meets the description uh, of Wallace uh, in the window. 
Dr. Crenshaw, the attending physician at Parkland, has written an extensive book. Three of other doctors have gone on the record to say that uh, it is most likely that Kennedy was shot from both the front and the back, that the uh, wound described in the Warren Commission as an exit wound in his throat. Uh, well, we now know definitively uh, that that uh, that that um, the description of that wound was moved by none other than Warren Commission member Gerald Ford, who at the request of J. Edgar Hoover uh, and Alan Dulles actually takes a pencil and moves uh, the description of the wound, or I should say the depiction of the wound in the autopsy diagram from Kennedy's upper back uh, to uh, the base of his neck uh, to make it look like it entered from the back and also to justify the cockamamie magic bullet theory uh, in which Lee Harvey Oswald allegedly got out three shots, but only two of which hit Kennedy, uh, one of them going on to, uh, to uh, uh, injure uh, Governor John Connolly, in which case the bullet would have had to change directions several times. So I think it is likely that Kennedy is shot from both the front and the back. They quickly perform a tracheotomy on the throat wound, so they can't you can't tell whether it is from the front or the back. I think there's likely a shooter uh, on the grassy knoll. Multiple witnesses see a man pull up in a green Plymouth station wagon. Uh, with a Goldwater sticker on it, by the way, very interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. Take a rifle out of a rifle bag, calmly shoot. They see a puff of smoke. They see the man replace the rifle uh, and drive. Uh, there are multiple witnesses who told this to the Warren Commission. They are all ignored. Johnny Roselli, the gangster who's pretty deeply involved in all of this, uh, claims that he was a shooter from the sewer grate. I think there may have also been a shooter in the Dow Tex meet building next door. It is absolutely clear if you read uh, Dr. Crenshaw's book uh, or you see the testimony of these doctors that Kennedy is shot from the front and the back. The mob has a shooter. That's uh, most likely a, a Corsican assassin who was brought in specifically uh, for this task. Uh, I think that is the shooter on the grassy knoll. Lyndon Johnson, who left nothing to chance in his entire career, has his own expert marksman. Uh, that would be Malcolm Wallace from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. Can I stop you no there, way. Roger? Whatever happened uh, to Malcolm Wallace? Why Why Ma does history not know his name? Uh, Malcolm Wallace is uh, not mentioned anywhere in the biographies of Robert Caro. Um, uh, neither is, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of things left out. Uh, Billy Solestis is never mentioned in any of the Caro biographies. Uh, although Solestis, after getting out of prison, would insist that he attended meetings in which the murder of John F. Kennedy um, was was planned. Uh, and then there's uh, then there's, of course, Lyndon Johnson's mistress, Madeline Brown. Madeline Brown bore a son uh, with Lyndon Johnson. You can tell because she looks just like a Lyndon Johnson. Madeline Brown has said over the years she's now deceased, of course. Uh, including to Geraldo in an extraordinary interview that she slept with Johnson at the Fort Worth Hotel the night before John F. Kennedy was killed, and that Johnson told her that night 
in the next morning that after tomorrow, I won't have to put up with those Irish sons of bitches anymore. Um, but Madeline Brown, of course, is not mentioned in, uh, in uh, any of Robert Caro's biographies uh, uh, of Johnson. Strangely enough, when I asked Geraldo about his interview with Madeline Brown, he told me he didn't know anybody named Marilyn Brown and he had never interviewed her. But you can go to YouTube and find that interview yourself. But what happened to Malcolm Wallace? Malcolm he, Wallace, but, uh, he, he was murdered when uh, mm. when uh, when they uh, uh, when someone uh, jammed a potato in the uh, exhaust system of his truck uh, and the cab filled with uh, carbon dioxide uh, and uh, he died quite uh, tragically. There's a long trail of death around Lyndon Johnson uh, of witnesses to his uh, epic corruption. I mean, Johnson uh, was nothing like the public figure uh, that uh, that his psychophants have tried to push. He was a lifelong segregationist. Uh, he we now know from the declassified documents uh, recently released. These were released by President Trump, actually, that. Johnson was a member of the Ku Klux Klan when he was in the House. Uh, as Senate Majority Leader, he killed every major piece of civil rights legislation in the 50s uh, until 1958. And even then, he, although he is not a signer of the Southern Manifesto against uh, civil rights progress, he's the author of it. Uh, he was planning to run for president in 1960, so he himself was not a signator. But he did add a poison pill uh, amendment, which held that any person who violated the 1958 Civil Rights Act uh, against a, a black person would be tried by a state rather than a federal jury. Well, in Mississippi or Alabama in 1958, there is no jury that would have convicted a white man of a crime against a black man. Uh, so Johnson really uh, was not the great champion of civil rights that he is depicted as of today. Uh, in his uh, uh, epic book, uh, Bystander, by Nick Bryant, uh, he outlines how Lyndon Johnson, once he became vice president, kept cautioning Kennedy that he could not move on any major civil rights legislation, uh, not, not fair housing, not, not, uh, not voting rights legislation, so on. Uh, because the old bulls in the Senate, the most of the Senate committee chairmen were Southerners who would kill John Kennedy's program. What Johnson was really doing was reserving that for himself. Civil rights was the first thing he did, uh, a complete reversal of his entire career. But one of the reasons I think he did it was to buy cover for himself on the left as he plunged us much, much deeper uh, into Vietnam. Uh, Lyndon Johnson and his wife held huge stock positions in Bell Helicopter, Sikorsky, uh, and also General Dynamics. Uh, Lyndon Johnson literally made tens of millions of dollars out of his own escalation of the Vietnam War. Okay, Roger, I'm going to ask you to please stand by one more time, hit a quick break here, and much more straight ahead with Roger Stone. Okay, and we are back with our remaining time with the one and only Roger Stone. I think that last point 
is probably the most critical. And again, I, you've laid out so many different threads leading to, leading to the Kennedy assassination, but I want to drill down on this because this is relevant to Nixon, who comes later, Reagan, who comes later, and of course, Donald Trump. John F. Kennedy assigned the first combat advisors to Vietnam, but he really didn't want to go into Vietnam. He did not want the United States involved in a full-fledged war in Southeast Asia. So the, the deep state, obviously, which is the military industrial complex, the intelligence agencies, they all really desired and in fact needed to go into Vietnam. Keep in mind, this is like 20 years after World War II, military industrial complex about which President Eisenhower had warned, they always need a war. They need global conflict to justify their existence, but also to, to enrich themselves. And LBJ was a critical part of that. So was JFK a casualty of that belief? Because Lyndon Johnson, as soon as he takes the reins of power, he immediately begins to ramp up U.S. military involvement in, in Vietnam, right on cue. Well, John F. Kennedy was uh, obviously uh, distraught over the failure of the Bay of Pigs invasion. Part of that invasion plan, which he approved, which was conditioned, by the way, on the fact that it must look like plausibly uh, an indigenous Cuban uprising rather than an invasion by the U.S. government, uh, was a part of the plan in which 28 Panamanian flagged bombers flown by Cuban pilots were supposed to provide air cover for the uh, the Cubans who were storming the beaches at the Bay of Pigs. Charles Cable, the number two man at the CIA, uh, and the brother of Texas Mayor Earl Cable, who never left Lyndon Johnson's side on the day of the assassination, quietly canceled that air cover. Uh, then as the invasion uh, began to turn sour, largely because uh, Castro had learned uh, uh, of uh, the invasion, exactly when they would come and when, uh, was uh, had sharpshooters cutting down the men storming the beach, it is then that Curtis LeMay goes to John Kennedy and says the only way to save the day is by sending in the U.S. Air Force, which JFK declined to do uh, because it violated the whole idea under which he had approved the invasion, to plausible deniability. Uh, so the CIA and the military blame Kennedy. Kennedy blames them for, for the failure. I think you can draw a direct line uh, from Kennedy to Nixon to Trump in the sense that after Kennedy's sour experience with the CIA, he threatened to smash them to, into a million pieces and scatter them to the wind. He was an existential threat uh, between the Cuban Missile Crisis, which had taken him by surprise, uh, and the failure of the Bay of Pigs. Um, uh, they, uh, they had uh, gotten a permanent enemy uh, in John Kennedy. Uh, the CIA, as you know, had actually favored Kennedy over Nixon in the 1960 election. They had briefed both candidates about the then uh, top secret plan to invade Cuba. Uh, and uh, Kennedy skillfully used that in the first debate, excoriating Nixon as part of the Eisenhower administration for not being aggressive enough about Castro. 
Nixon knew there was a plan to uh, to take out Castro, but he it was classified and he couldn't speak about it. Uh, Nixon always believed he'd been double crossed by the CIA uh, in their briefing of JFK. Uh, so Kennedy was, I think, removed in a uh, for a, all of the reasons we've discussed in a bloody coup uh, in which everybody had their individual interest. Most people don't know this, but Richard Nixon had an extensive plan to overhaul the entire national security apparatus. Yes. Uh, it was doc- documented in uh, Bob Haldeman's diaries. It's documented elsewhere. Uh, a newly reelected by a landslide, Richard Nixon posed an existential threat to the CIA and their power. Um, more recent classified documents have proven that they were well aware of the plans for the Watergate break-in. They infiltrated uh, the Watergate burglar group, uh, and uh, they uh, and many, at least four of the burglars, were still on the CIA payroll and still reporting to their handlers. So, yep. I believe I believe Nixon was removed for the same reason that Kennedy was removed, just not quite as bloody. They attempted yet again to remove Ronald Reagan. Uh, in the Iran-Contra scandal. Uh, I am not convinced that uh, Reagan was aware of the activities of his vice president, George Bush, his CIA director, Bill Casey, uh, and Colonel North, uh, but they sought to remove him over over that scandal. Uh, they failed. And uh, these are the same institutions, if not the same people, who uh, ramped up the uh, Russia, Russia, Russia hoax, the Ukrainian hoax, they attempted to remove yet another president. Uh, every one of these presidents, strangely enough, was an outsider. I mean, John Kennedy had independent wealth. Uh, he uh, he may have been the darling of the media establishment, but he was not the darling of the establishment. Uh, and um, he spoke openly about the danger of secret societies. He spoke openly. Uh, he was a hardline anti-communist. Uh, and uh, he, you're right, he was skeptical about going deeper into Vietnam. Uh, Richard Nixon had uh, ended the war in Vietnam. That wasn't the plan. They, When Nixon was elected, the hardliners in the Pentagon thought that he would uh, increase along the path uh, of Lyndon Johnson and further escalate the war. And although he did certainly bomb the daylights out of them, he did it to bring them to the table, ultimately got a conclusion uh, of the war. Uh, they removed him in a silent coup. And as I say, they tried to remove uh, uh, Reagan and then subsequently, of course, Trump. Same institutions, same tactics. So if we draw this thread out, Roger, and I agree with you, I think Nixon was framed by these deep state forces uh, with Watergate. Uh, The CIA played a clear role in setting him up in that. And of course, Nixon was making people talk about his bad judgment calls during Watergate. Well, if you're fed bad information based on a pack of lies, based on uh, these shadowy forces framing you for something, well, of course, there's going to be bad output when you're getting bad input. Um, So that's number one, because he was winding down Vietnam, he was making, he was opening the door to China, he had detente with the Soviet Union, deep state cannot have that. Fast forward to Reagan, 
Uh, you mentioned Iran-Contra, but what about the assassination attempt of Reagan, which happened, I think, March of 81? He was a brand new president. John Hinckley tackled to the ground as the gunman. What can you tell us about that? Uh, I cover this very extensively in my book, The Bush Crime Family. Uh, it's interesting you bring it up because now I am writing a book solely focused on the attempted uh, assassination of Reagan. John Hinckley's father, John Hinckley Sr., was a partner of George H.W. Bush's in the Zapata Oil Company. Uh, he was a heavy funder of George Bush's two U.S. Senate campaigns. Uh, it is denied that he was a contributor to George Bush's 1980 presidential campaign. Uh, but there's uh, the government report on the assassination uh, attempt on Reagan has never been released. But as in the case uh, of the murder of John Kennedy, there are too many bullets to be to to uh, to match the description of what we're told happened. Hinckley is in a crouching position, shooting from below. Uh, yet Kennedy, uh, pardon me, but uh, Reagan is hit uh, from a downward trajectory. Both uh, Judy Woodruff um, uh, and uh, uh, another woman reporter whose name escapes my mind at the moment, um, both report for CBS and NBC at that time, seeing a second man on the balcony of the Hilton Hotel above the doorway at the Hilton, uh, who's brandishing a gun. Uh, that Those have been scrubbed from the internet. I have copies uh, of them. Uh, so I think there are many, many questions. I think a plausible case could be made uh, that George H.W. Bush and his CIA comrades were deeply involved in the attempt to assassinate uh, Ronald Reagan. I make a pretty good case in my book, The Bush Crime Family. I will make a much tighter case in an upcoming book, which I'm working on even as we speak. Oh, well, we look forward to that. And you will be back on that sh on this show to talk about that. You know, as you're laying this out, Roger, I'm thinking about the role of the CIA. You know, it's completely illegal for the CIA, which is supposed to be trained on external enemies of the United States, to direct their fearsome power internally against American citizens. But this has been going on for decades. It didn't just start under Donald Trump. It didn't just start under Reagan or Nixon. This is this goes way back the depth of this danger and this corruption. But in particular, there was a CIA program called MKUltra, where the CIA basically did this illegal human experimentation where they uh, they brainwashed people, they honed in on weak, vulnerable people, they used drugs on them, brainwashed them, hypnotized them to act out in certain ways in society that would be beneficial to causing chaos and bedlam, which then allows the left and the deep state to do whatever they want. And I wonder in this case, or in all of these cases, I guess, Roger, um, from Lee Harvey Oswald to Wallace to God knows who to John Hinckley, I mean, are there darker shadowy forces here that we are not even aware of that sort of the unseen hands behind a lot of this about destroying and, and removing duly elected presidents of the United States? Well, the answer is clearly yes. I mean, uh, Dwight Eisenhower warned us about this in his famous uh, warning to be careful of the military-industrial complex. 
there's a permanent bureaucracy in place uh, in uh, the world's capitals. Uh, their interest is in power and money and control. They really have no ideology. Uh, they have uh, no nationality. Uh, the, this is the exact power of unelected bureaucrats that Richard Nixon was seeking to curb after his historic reelection. One of the main reasons why he was removed from power. Uh, and uh, I am uh, convinced uh, that uh, these same actors now are seeking to prosecute Donald Trump in a bunch of fabricated crimes uh, in multiple jurisdictions, uh, largely because he is leading uh, handily in the race for president and he's an existential threat Yes. Uh, to to those uh, to those forces. Yes. Just as Kennedy was, Nixon was uh, Reagan to some extent as well. Is this why no American president has ever fully released all of the Kennedy documents, including, by the way, our friend, President Trump? You know, I lobbied uh, President Trump very hard to release the documents when I pointed out to him in early uh, 2017 that the date set by Congress for the release of the JFK assassination documents uh, came during his watch and they could only be delayed by presidential order. Otherwise, they would be uh, released. This came as a total surprise to him. No one on his staff had told him this. When he inquired, uh, he found out that I was right. He asked me what I thought he should do. And I said, I think you should release it all. It's been over 50 years. The American people have a right to know what happened, because no one at this point believes the badly, uh, why I should say widely debunked conclusions of the Warren Commission, uh, the House uh, uh, Special Select Committee on Assassinations as late as 1978 concludes that, uh, that there was a conspiracy and that organized crime was involved. Uh, they should have concluded much more, but the fact is the CIA stonewalled that congressional committee, providing no documents and no testimony. Uh, and those staffing uh, the House committee were largely experts on organized crime. So they got a big piece of the puzzle, but they didn't get all of the puzzle. Uh, ultimately, uh, Trump told me that uh, CIA Director Mike Pompeo convinced him to hold back approximately 20% of the documents because he said they would expose the CIA's uh, methods and sources. Well, uh, if they're involved in the murder of an American president, we, we need to expose their methods. And as for their sources, that's an absurdity. This was over 50 years ago. There's really no one still alive who is directly involved in the assassination of uh, John Kennedy. Many, many people, when I try to tell them my theory of the Kennedy assassination, the involvement of Johnson, the CIA, the FBI, the Secret Service, uh, Big Texas Oil, organized crime, they said, well, if you are right, surely someone would have come forward. I'm not sure people understand the dozens and dozens and dozens of key witnesses uh, and key officials uh, who, who meet untimely deaths uh, in the immediate aftermath of John Kennedy's assassination. Uh, there are many, and they're all mentioned uh, in my book, The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ. You can go to 
themanwhokilledkennedy.com, themanwhokilledkennedy.com, if you want to get that book. A New York Times bestseller. Yes, and it's a superb book and fascinating. I have it in my mind, Roger, like this fantasy that, you know, presidents get elected or installed, as in the case with Biden, but they get into office and then they get a visit from, you know, these deep state forces, the head of the CIA or whatever, as you're saying, Pompeo then made a visit to Trump and they basically hold a gun to their heads whether there's compromising material on these presidents once they get in office, and then they are owned by the deep state and end up doing their bidding, even if they don't want to. But you know what? The, the most durable of all of these presidents is Donald Trump. And the deep state cannot believe that he is still standing. So in our remaining moments here with you, Roger, um, you know, based on all of these hard-earned lessons of history, What advice do you give to President Trump and future Republican presidents, if we ever get another one, uh, about how to anticipate what the deep state has planned and how to combat it once they move against you? Well, uh, look, we're already seeing it in real time. These uh, indictments over the handling of presidential documents is contrived and ridiculous. Uh, The claim that, that it's a crime for Donald Trump to doubt that uh, the results of the 2020 uh, election uh, is an absurdity. That's not a crime. Everybody has a right to question the outcome of an election. The idea that Trump knew he lost uh, but conspired with others to hold on to pressure, that requires something in Latin they call, the legal term is mens rea. They have to prove Trump's mindset. Donald Trump, I know, never believed that he lost the election, not then, not on election night. Not in the weeks after the election, not today. Uh, just never believed it was true. Uh, so they're moving on him now in real time. Should he get through this crucible, which will be extraordinarily difficult, because uh, he'd win a free, fair, honest, transparent election, given yes. the impact of Like he the, did last time right, <laughs> before uh, they, they got in. Yeah. Uh, uh, he, you know, if he can have a fair election, I think he will win. But he has, he has two enormous obstacles. These cases against him and the trial schedule is meant to sap his energy, uh, to, uh, to siphon his money uh, for legal fees, uh, and to blacken his name. So far, uh, while the first two may be working, the last one is not working. The American people see through this tsunami of, of lawfare, this tsunami of contrived uh, indictments, uh, and has only made him stronger. Uh, but uh, it will take Herculean strength, which I actually think he possesses, uh, mm-hmm. to retake the White House. Uh, he himself said if he has to do it from a jail cell, uh, then so be it. Um, I've stood trial in D.C. I've been in that particular meat grinder, uh, even though I did nothing whatsoever wrong. Mueller even admits in his final report that is only released on election night, November 3rd, 2020, by court order, that he found no evidence of Russian collusion, WikiLeaks collaboration, or any other crime on my part. Uh, I was convicted of lying to Congress, but what would be my motive to lie if I hadn't done anything whatsoever wrong? There was, as we now know, no Russian collusion to lie about, nor was there any collaboration between the Trump campaign and WikiLeaks to lie about. So he's facing the same kind of killing field in D.C. that I faced. 
Uh, and this is why, well, I pray for him every single day. This may be the last best chance we have to save this nation, to preserve our constitutional liberties, to return the country to both peace and prosperity, uh, a place where you don't have to worry about the FBI surveilling you without a warrant, a place where you don't have to be worried about sense being censored on the internet because you believe something politically that is not part of the conventional wisdom of the two-party duopoly that is busy destroying this country. I pray for President Trump uh, almost every day as well. I should get it on an everyday schedule. Everybody should be uh, praying for him because these are dark forces. And man, is this a spiritual battle. It is political. It's secular. But there's something bigger going on here on a spiritual plane because evil is just so in our faces now in ways that has never been before. Evil has always existed, but it's never been this flagrant uh, before or certainly in, in the recent past. So uh, yeah, this is a spiritual battle. So the Republican primary is over. Donald Trump is clearly the nominee. But Roger, the Democrat primary has not even started. <laughs> and our mutual friend, Joel Gilbert, was the first one to discuss the possibility of Michelle Obama uh, being the Democrat nominee. And then you and I have been talking about it ever since. Do you still see it that way? Do you think she is going to be the nominee? And if so, when and how do they execute this plan? Uh, the, the interesting thing about the Democratic Party National Convention is that it's really dominated by these superdelegates. Uh, and uh, the delegates uh, who are pledged to Joe Biden can be unbound or un outvoted at any time. Uh, I'm still convinced that the chieftains uh, in the Democratic Party uh, will ultimately dump Joe Biden. Uh, and the only way they can rationalize bypassing a sitting vice president uh, of color, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, is by replacing her with a, a much more popular woman of color, that would be Michelle Obama. Uh, the more she says she's not interested, um, the more I'm certain that uh, ultimately she will be the nominee. Yeah, you have been talking about this very early. Me too. Joel Gilbert's got this great documentary, Michelle Obama 2024, about it. I think she poses a singular threat uh, to President Trump, I, I just, you know, she's a woman of color. She's immune to criticism. Uh, she's got the entire Obama machine, which is currently running the country behind her. So all she would need to do is throw a switch. Um, and they could actually wait until the Democrat convention next August and have her unbloodied from a primary process. It is the nightmare scenario. So let's hope and pray that that does not happen. Um, Roger, this has been an extraordinary conversation. And this is why I wanted to have you here on Thanksgiving. Um, and I want everybody to, to listen to this conversation because it's been eye-opening, uh, certainly for me, but I know for the audience as well. These are tough but necessary conversations. Most Americans are still um, very good people and in many ways very idealistic and naive. And we don't want to think our fellow Americans are destroying us from within but they are. And so this is why we have to have these, these really hard, uncomfortable conversations about not just what's going on with Donald Trump, but the history of it, because it didn't just originate in 2015 when he came down the escalator. This has been going on a hell of a long time, and we've got to help illuminate how we got to the present 
and to this dangerous moment so we can turn it around. And Roger, you were just extraordinary and, and so wonderful to join us here today. Well, as you know, it's such a complicated topic that we could easily spend two hours on it and still not scratch the surface. Uh, but I hope we brought you the basic outline of why I do not believe Lee Harvey Oswald shot and killed President John F. Kennedy and how the assassination of Kennedy, the removal of Nixon, the attempted removal of Reagan, uh, and the current uh, and previous efforts to destroy Donald Trump are all related events. Let us pray. Thank you very much for your time. Monica Crowley, it is always great to be with you. Ah, Roger Stone, my good friend. Roger Stone, star of stage and screen. I hope you'll come back with your brand new book about the deep state when that is ready. And as I have said uh, for many years, I am glad that Roger Stone is on her side. Thank you so much, my friend. God bless you. Well, what an unbelievable blockbuster show on this Thanksgiving. Am I right? I always wanted when I started this podcast to do these kinds of deep dive shows into single issue areas. And of course, we have so much stuff coming at us all the time that, you know, we're doing the headlines and we're doing the stories that are breaking constantly. But this has been a real treat for me to do this deep dive into JFK, the assassination and the deep state writ large because we need to understand where we have been to understand where we are and where we are going. I hope you've enjoyed this special Thanksgiving Day show, and I hope you enjoy this whole holiday weekend. It's really a special time in America for all of us. Um, and really, in a couple of weeks, the election is just going to consume everything and everybody. So please take this time to enjoy those you love, your family, your friends, your neighbors. Enjoy some good food and, yes, a lot of carbohydrates, a lot of desserts. Have a great, great holiday weekend, and I will see you right back here next week with much more. This episode of the Monica Crowley Podcast was produced by Bayhockle Entertainment, LLC.